1: It walks, it talks, it reports to Shanghai. Cryptowire finds a backdoor in some Android phones. Locky ransomware takes a run at the U.S. Army Cyber Command. Crysis ransomware is decrypted. Spam Tort 2.0 is out, and it's thinking big. A Trojan may be implicated in the Tesco fraud campaign, and it may have more banks in its crosshairs. And watch out for the adult FriendFinder-themed spam that will follow in the breach's wake. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary for Tuesday, November 15, 2016. We've heard a lot in recent months, more than anyone in a better world would like to hear, about Russian cyber operations. Today, we'll hear about another nation's threat actors. Whether commercial, criminal, or state intelligence service is so far unclear. Security company Cryptowire has discovered a significant vulnerability that affects many Android devices, especially prepaid or burner phones. Essentially, pre-installed addups software amounts to a backdoor that collects text messages and ships them every 72 hours to an address in China. ADAPS software enables phone manufacturers to provide remote firmware updates. And according to Cryptowire, this isn't a bug inadvertently introduced into the software, but rather a deliberate installation. Shanghai Adup's Technology Company, which according to the New York Times, claims its product is in some 700 million devices, says Adups enables them to monitor user behavior for a Chinese phone manufacturer. Two of its larger clients are Huawei and ZTE. The software wasn't intended to have that functionality in U.S.-built devices. One U.S. manufacturer, BLU Products, says it's updated its software to eliminate the backdoor from the 120,000 BLU phones affected. Whether the backdoor is a data scraping tool intended for commercial marketing or a state-directed espionage is unclear. Adup's attorneys characterize it as the former and tell the New York Times that, quote, this is a private company that made a mistake, end quote, and not a business that's affiliated or colluding with the Chinese government. We spoke with Ryan Johnson, the crypto wire researcher who discovered the vulnerability.
2: So I, I usually like to take a look at what comes installed, on the system image and I noticed there were uh, essentially two applications. One is com.adeps.phota and the other is com.adeps.phota.sysoper and those two were communicating. So I noticed in one of the content providers it would provide access to the call log as well as the text messages. So I thought that was a little strange. Um, So it was essentially like a wrapper Um, so usually you would provide your own content, but this was once you would query it, it would query the, the phone calls and the text messages, and also allow you to write files and read files. And it was open to any app on the phone. Uh, once I saw that it was providing that, I looked to see what other applications were accessing it because it seems strange just to have that there out in the open. I noticed it was when you plug in the phone or when the, there's a connectivity change broadcast intent. So, like, when you leave a Wi-Fi network or come on a Wi-Fi network, uh, it would send this out, and the data was eligible to be sent out every three days. Hmm. So, uh, and then w- once I saw that, looked at the the URL, looked at the did an NS lookup for it, saw that it was a server in Shanghai, China. It, it was pretty concerning once I saw that, and it, it was sent out in an HTTP post where the it was actually like a zip file in the form data so it could just extract that and then and that was over HTTPS and then also at least for the text messages there there was further uh encryption being used um to conceal uh the the actual content of the text message which the key was hard-coded and uh, as well as the IV so that that was extracted and then from there you can see the actual body of the text message, and it also has the number. So they can see, essentially, who you're texting um, and who you're calling.
1: That's Ryan Johnson from Cryptowire. We'll be sure to have more on this story as it develops. State espionage services are, of course, active in many ways, as electronic capabilities and the lives of people online are assimilated to traditional espionage tradecraft. Motherboard reports that intelligence agencies—their lead example comes from Brazil— are making foreseeable, and as Motherboard puts it, creepy, use of various social media platforms for traditional ends of infiltration, compromise, and recruitment. Ransomware continues to circulate. This week, U.S. Army Cyber Command reports that some of its personnel have been receiving phishing emails carrying Lockheed ransomware payloads. There's some good news, however, on the ransomware front. Over the weekend, Kaspersky released decryption codes for the Crysis ransomware family. Bravo, Kaspersky. Verint has seen a new variant of SpamTort, an advanced multi-layered spam bot, circulating in the wild since 2014. SpamTort 2.0, as it's inevitably being called, operates with several command and control servers compromised through vulnerable WordPress and Joomla extensions. It's using several thousand spam mailers, compromised websites, and incorporates features that enable spam campaigns to be more efficiently conducted. Observers continue to harumph about how Tesco ought to have known better, that it should have done more to prevent it. Maybe so, but even if you think your security's pretty solid, bankers, well, don't get cocky, kid. ESET says that the Retefei Trojan was involved in Tesco bank fraud. Retefei, usually spread via malicious email, configures a proxy server for men in the middle access to traffic between customers and their online account. It also installs a bogus root certificate to fend off warnings of interaction with a spoofed site, and it has a mobile component that intercepts passcodes to subvert two-factor authentication. ESET believes other banks are being actively targeted with Retifé. Security vendors have begun their holiday season warnings for online shoppers. Black Friday, the traditional start of the doorbuster shopping season, is less than two weeks away. We'll have occasion to share some of that advice in upcoming podcasts. In the meantime, you can read the advice on offer in today's issue of the Cyberwire. There's that old saying about the only constant in this world being change. For many in the security biz, part of that change is deciding how much, if any, of your data and services to move to the cloud and how to make it possible for your users to access what they need on an expanding array of devices. We checked in with Pamela Dingle, senior technical architect at Ping Identity, for her take on how companies are handling these challenges. They call it the digital transformation journey.
0: The idea is to not just move your business into new technology paradigms, but to embrace those paradigms and to change the ways that you do business. To actually leverage these new capabilities of new technologies. So digital transformation is not new. Anyone who's been in the business for a long time has seen initiatives to, you know, take advantage of mobile, to take advantage of, you know, this new web 2.0 thing that came out a while back. Um, but what's happened right now, of course, is that because we have these incredible stable, elastic platforms. Uh, And we also have these changing user paradigms of uh, tablets and uh, mobile phones and all of these amazing things. The, The juxtaposition of those two things has meant that everybody is thinking about what it means to move their infrastructure to the cloud and transform it at the same time to leverage the abilities of the cloud. Um, that's half of it. And then the other half is the front end pieces, the user experience pieces, those are moving to a, a device, and anywhere device type of paradigm.
1: So when we're talking about a digital transformation, uh, what part does security play in that?
0: Uh, it plays a massive part. I don't believe that this kind of digital transformation um, would even be possible or advisable. Uh, except that there is a heightened security awareness today. So if you can imagine people trying to do what we're doing now, even a decade ago, you would end up with silos of information and you wouldn't be able to talk uh, to anything and you wouldn't have any visibility into what's going on. But because we have uh, really good security infrastructure around how to manage the front door of a lot of corporate infrastructures or customer facing infrastructures, we uh, we have the ability to execute uh, or at least maintain some control over how people are using resources that might now be splayed across various platforms and, and using various paradigms on the internet. I'm excited about the fact that it doesn't matter how so much anymore. It only matters that what you do is well audited, that you're watching it properly, um, and that you've got a decent uh, risk profile as to why you're doing things the way you're doing them.
1: That's Pamela Dingle from Ping Identity. The Digital Transformation Survey report is available on their website. In industry news, Nehemiah Software acquires Siege Technologies, specialists in forecasting attacker capabilities. Finally, a U.K. court has approved Laurie Love's extradition to the U.S., where he'll face hacking charges. And if Ash Carter has his druthers, there'll be no 11th-hour pardon for Edward Snowden as President Obama prepares to leave office. It's safe to say that Mr. Snowden isn't exactly flavor of the month with the U.S. Defense Secretary. Predictably, adult friend finder-themed spam has begun to appear. Warn those 339 million friends of yours who were incautious enough to avail themselves of that service that they'll have other worries soon enough. We note with regret that some 78,000 of the compromised accounts are U.S. military addresses. We've said it before, and sadly we have to say it again. Straighten up and fly right. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Uh, Emily, welcome back. You all have a new report out called The Truth About the Dark Web, Separating Fact from Fiction. Take us through the report. What kind of stuff did you find?
3: Uh, so, yeah, we, we've been working on this report for the last few months and kind of basic overview of the report. We did a, um, a random sample of Tor hidden services and kind of took a look at the proportion of different content types on the dark web. And uh, kind of the most interesting thing to come out of that, contrary to popular opinion, is that the dark web is mostly legal to the tune of 55 uh, percent we saw. Of that 55%, that's made up of both kind of normal legal content and then what we call explicit content, so perfectly legal porn. Uh, And that's just not something you hear about very often. People are quick to talk about how the dark web is a place full of danger and crime and drugs, and that's definitely true. It's just only half of the story.
1: But just because something on there is legal, that doesn't mean that it's not uh, problematic.
3: Potentially, definitely, and I think that's one of the... You know, one of the struggles that we have as analysts is looking at material and trying to determine whether or not it's it's potentially damaging. And you know, that can come in many forms, right? So is it is it slander that's technically legal? Or do you have someone who's discussing proprietary information that they either shouldn't have access to or that they shouldn't be discussing? You know, that's one of the reasons that we kind of try to remove a lot of the, the human analysis from the work that we do and focus on being a data company is to avoid situations where where we may overlook something that may actually be important because unless you're the organization involved, you really don't know what, what can be sensitive.
1: And, and is that driven by the, the fact that a lot of people are, are on here anonymously?
3: Absolutely, you know the kind of tour hidden services by their nature are anonymous, and people by and large will choose not to identify themselves. There's really no benefit in uh, providing information about your identity. You might say I work in healthcare, or you might say I work in technology. But there's a very broad definitions. Healthcare can be manufacturing, it can be retail, it can be pharma. If you work in technology, you could be doing everything from You know, working um, at kind of a a technology retailer up to working on very sensitive kind of technological advancements at, you know, uh, an intelligence institution. And people are quick to build their own reputation, but there is a fine line between establishing yourself as an authority in a space and avoiding giving too much away about yourself. I think a good rule of thumb here is that... Anyone who wants to go on the dark web and announce that they have a secret probably doesn't <laughs> unless they are, you know, you're dealing with people who are more more prolific in this space, people who have built up a reputation over time. Someone who says, you know, take a look at this space at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, you're probably going to listen to them.
1: So it's more subtle than that.
3: It's more subtle. Uh, you know, if you need to say that you have a secret, do you really have one? Yeah.
1: Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. The report, The Truth About the Dark Web, Separating Fact from Fiction, can be found on the Terbium Labs website. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers...